Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. What up, Get Up Nation? My name is Ben Biddick, the host of the Get Up Nation podcast and co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance, with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Lurong Living, Adam Greenberg. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Dr. Stacy Drury of the Tulane Health System in New Orleans. Dr. Drury and her team just won the 2018 Norbert and Charlotte Rieger Award for Outstanding Scientific Achievement, which was issued by the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. She and her team are doing revolutionary work when it comes to understanding how stress and adverse childhood experiences impact our lives, even across generations. Her character and intelligence is extremely impressive. I knew I wanted to interview her as soon as I saw her describe how she, quote, couldn't imagine a better job than helping children and their families cope with mental illness during some of the most tragic and devastating medical problems children can face. Her kind heart and brilliant mind are invested in easing the suffering that families face during adversity. Dr. Jury, welcome to the Get Up Nation podcast. Thank you so much will you share some of your bio and credentials with get up nation to help us understand the work you do i like to consider that my educational background is sort of the non-traditional trajectory started my undergraduate career at the university of virginia really focused on genetics and worked in a fruit fly lab there my mentor jay hirsch was this amazing person who got me extremely excited about the potential of genetics to help us understand biology. And while I was also there, I majored in religious studies, really focusing on biomedical ethics. And I think that's where my draw to really understand how our healthcare system and how we function as medical practitioners can really provide incredible support for people, but that it has to be very thoughtful. And so from there, I was very focused on a career in genetics and not as much focused on a medical career until I realized that a lot of what I loved about genetics and a lot of what I loved about other work that I was doing was this interacting with people, and particularly children. So when I started my medical career, I also worked at a camp for children with cancer and their siblings, and over time became the medical director, and that's where I really had my first exposure to resilience. So there were so many kids that had had cancer and brain tumors and had had all of these very complicated medical experiences and yet were running around and playing and functioning exactly like normal children. And it was such an eye-opener to see the power of resilience in these kids, and I felt very honored to be part of that process. As I went along further, I began to recognize that the place where the most change seems to occur in caring for children is in child psychiatry. So 
the idea that you could actually influence a kid's sense of self and sense of ability to accomplish things by just being an active listener and being reflective and being responsive and supportive and learning how to lose playing Candyland became the surprise of my entire training that it was really fun but incredibly rewarding. And I have been able over the course of my career to have a lot of support from my employers and my department chairs to grow both a very unique clinical practice, but also to grow my research program where the interface between the two is this very active back and forth. So my research questions follow my clinical experience, and I think that's so important so that I ask better questions and I integrate what I hear from my families as I move forward, making it the best job ever because I get to see these amazing kids and be part of their lives and watch them grow and develop and also get to challenge my sort of intellectual curiosity at the same time. You won an award this year, the 2018 Norbert and Charlotte Rieger Award for Outstanding Scientific Achievement. Will you share the work you and your team have done which resulted in this award, especially with regard to RSA, its significance related to stress and resilience, and how a mother's adverse childhood experiences, even prior to pregnancy, can affect the next generation? Sure. I think this was definitely a surprise for me. And one of the things that I'm most excited about is that my co-authors on this paper are those close colleagues, but also very close friends. And the first author is Dr. Sarah Gray, who is an amazing rising star in the field of trauma and child psychology and one of my first mentees. And so to have an award where my mentees and my students and another close collaborator, Captain Steele, on this paper really, for me, was a sort of wonderful achievement because it is a reflection more about the team of people that I get to work with than any particular scientific idea. It's this idea that if you work closely with people and you think together, you can really ask important questions that have impact. And so this study was based on an NIH-funded study where we have followed women from pregnancy, and we are now following the kids up at 48 months of age, although the initial study was only funded to look at them through one year of age. And in this study, what we did was we said, well, we know that prenatal experiences are important predictors of infant biology and the ability of the infant to have an adaptive stress response system, but what about mom's exposures prior to pregnancy? And so the premise of the study was really based on a seminal study by Andan Pilati in 1998 called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, where they sort of retrospectively asked people about their exposure to early adversity, and then they did a very non-scientific thing, which is they counted up the number of exposures to adverse childhood experiences, and that number was a very strong predictor of both mental and physical health outcomes. The research prior to our study also said that that same metric of adverse childhood experiences was also associated with preterm birth and low birth weight and pregnancy complications, which gave us the idea that adverse childhood experiences may also be influencing the next generation. And one process by which we thought that might happen is through these developing stress response systems. So 
the way that our bodies respond to changes in the environment is that we activate different stress response systems. So we have the autonomic nervous system, which is this balance between your fight and flight response and your rest and digest response. So your autonomic system is the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. And we started looking at this system because of all the stress response systems, it's the one that develops earliest. So if I wanted to look at the cross-generational effects of mom's adversity, really taking a look in infancy on the earliest developing stress response system is a great place to start. And so what we did was we got all this information from moms during pregnancy, and then we got a lot of medical information about delivery. And then at four months of age, we brought the mom and the child into my laboratory and had them do a standard assessment of how well they functioned as a team, so what we call a dyadic assessment, which we use the still-phase paradigm. And the still-phase paradigm is sort of a typical reaction that happens over the course of a day. The mom plays and engages with her child for a period of time, and then because being a mom is hard, there are times when moms can't always be responsive to their infants, right? So you have to cook, you have to clean, you have to change diapers. And so you're not always able to sit place with your child. And what we do in the still phase is we have the mom stare at her infant with a mutual expression. And for an infant, this is very atypical. And it is a stressor, and it activates the earliest stress response that an infant has, which is the autonomic nervous system. And then after the mom does this sort of neutral, non-interactive period, she's allowed to play and re-engage with her child, so that's a recovery. And what we expect in a typical interaction is that early on, RSA, which is a measure of parasympathetic function, is going to be happy, right? So the baby's going to be interacting with mom, so the parasympathetic system is going to be higher than the sympathetic nervous system because the baby is resting and relaxed. And when mom has her neutral expression, we expect that the sympathetic nervous system is going to come online and we're going to get a decrease in the parasympathetic tone because the baby wants to figure out what's going on and say, hey, wait a second, mom, pay attention to me. And then when mom re-engages, we expect that that parasympathetic tone will come back up. So that's a very flexible system, and we want to see that because we want the baby to recognize that there are changes in the environment, that they need to do something to get mom's attention back, and then be responsive to mom's assistance with recovering or helping the baby re-regulate at the end. And so in the study, what we looked at was the relationship between mom's own retrospective report during pregnancy of her adverse childhood experiences before the age of 18 and its influence on the pattern of reactivity. And we also looked at how prenatal stress, so mom's report of different stressors, financial stressors, depression, anxiety, any life events that might have happened during pregnancy, and how the impact of her adverse childhood experiences compared to her prenatal stress exposures, influenced this pattern of the back and forth between the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. And what we saw surprised us. Why it surprised us was we expected that they would do the same thing and that they would sort of be interactive. 
And instead, what we saw was that the prenatal stress really influenced the baby's ability to recover. So that babies who had had high prenatal stress really struggled to bring their parasympathetic nervous system back online and had a difficult time re-regulating with mom. What we saw with the mom's exposure to adverse childhood experiences was that it basically lowered the whole set point of the autonomic nervous system. So babies came into the play period with mom, the first one, with much lower parasympathetic tone, and they reacted much less to the neutral expression with mom. So they had much less change over time, indicating that for infants whose moms had had a lot more exposure to adverse childhood experiences before they were conceived, that they were sort of preparing potentially for a more stressful environment so that they were going to be less responsive overall to changes in what's happening in their environment. And this is actually really important because the idea of having a reactive physiologic system like the autonomic nervous system isn't that it's good or bad. What these stress response systems do is they allow us to be open to the environment around us. And so this is suggesting that these babies are at least starting out less open to the environment. And this means that they may be less impacted potentially by a continued traumatic environment or stressful environment, but also are going to miss out some of the positive things in their environment, both in terms of learning, so they may be less able to um, recognize changes and patterns in the learning environment, and they may have less ability to regulate their emotions across a broader range of exposures and experiences. And there is beginning evidence that early RSA is actually a risk factor for later cardiovascular risk. So these infants are sort of preparing themselves physiologically for a more stressful environment, which can be protective, but it's one of those things that we worry may be an adaptation that has a cost for later learning and potentially health risk. So I think the other part about this that is important, and I think why we chose the autonomic nervous system, is that we also know that early caregiving, so sensitive and responsive contingent caregiving, can reshape the reactivity of this autonomic nervous system. So there's been some amazing work done by one of my colleagues and dear friends, Ruth Feldman, in Tel Aviv, where she looked at differences and changes in maternal sensitivity and was able to see that more sensitive and contingent caregiving actually creates greater plasticity or flexibility in the autonomic nervous system. So the idea is that if a mom is sensitive and responsive to a child, then the child is allowed to have more variability in their parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system because the mom is going to be able to help them regulate. And so the hope and what we are working on right now and what we are beginning to see is that while these adverse childhood experiences before conception are causing this decrease in flexibility of the autonomic nervous system, 
moms who are sensitive and responsive and able to identify their infant cues and respond to them are actually going to be able to reshape that sort of decreased plasticity and bring these children back to having a, an appropriately reactive pattern of RSA and autonomic nervous system. And so that's really where we're headed because I think that there is this idea that a lot of these adversities and traumatic exposures have these changes that are not fixable. And I am a firm believer, and I think my exposure to kids with chronic illnesses has really taught me that there is a huge amount of ability to be resilient. And that, you know, as a child psychiatrist, part of my job with older children is figuring out how to rebuild resilience in them. But I think for younger children, we already have this amazing biologic system in place where this caregiver-child relationship is so important for resilience, and it's really going to be about maximizing that protective effect in these children, particularly ones whose moms have been at risk. Will you share the significance of these findings in your mind when it comes to public health, mental health, and how medical health workers can bring effective healing to children and families? Yeah, so I think there's two different aspects to that question. One is that I think for a lot of medical fields, we need to stop thinking about the individual in front of us in terms of just right now, that we really need to take a more life history type approach to understanding how they got to be in our office. Mm -hmm. And that focusing just on the child or the patient in the moment isn't going to capture all of the different factors that have led to someone being not well, be it physical or mental illness. And while the adverse childhood experiences scale, doesn't make a lot of scientific sense because it's retrospective and very blunt and doesn't have any sort of differentiation between the type of exposures, it's still a very powerful predictor. And it's a powerful predictor that is very easy to integrate into clinical practice. And particularly for child psychiatry and for psychiatry in general, I think that we often do not have as much of an impact as we want in terms of outcomes. And part of it may be that we are not effectively capturing all of the different experiences that have happened to our patients. And so I think that those physical health and mental health, and I, I separate them artificially, I think that we need to really begin to capture um, these exposures and understand that they are probably contributing to health outcomes. I think the other significant part for me is that it really drives me to be more active in this field and this area of research because I want to understand the mechanisms and I want to understand what we need to do to really create a better buffering system and how do we really, I don't want to say fix, but how do we readjust these stress response systems because I'm not ever going to be able to prevent adverse childhood experiences. But the more that we understand about the biology and the mechanisms, the more I can not only make sure that our interventions or prevention efforts are correcting these pathways or readapting these pathways, but also that I may be able to find new treatments right, that really target these methodologies. I think the other part of this that worries me a little bit more 
is that much of what we do in terms of psychiatry and mental health is we look at people as getting better, but we measure that by reports, right? So we measure that by either our own observation of this individual or by their report of their behavior and their feelings. And I truly believe that there are biological underpinnings to these things that we call mental illness and that they start in the brain, but that the brain is connected to the body. And without measuring the impact of my treatments or my interventions, on those physiologic processes and molecular processes, I may be missing some of the residual effects of trauma and adversity. And maybe they are behaving well and they're social emotionally regulated, but that they have these underlying scars that create risks down the line. And I, I don't want to leave any scars if I don't have to. Could you go into a little bit of how this affects children and families who have witnessed or experienced violence? I think that Particularly for violence exposure, we underappreciate its effect on families and children. And I think that my understanding and sort of where I am because of our own data is that direct exposure to violence is causing physiologic changes in children, but exposure within the family system is also another layer of exposure that has its own effects, and that even exposure at the level of the community, so violence in the community, such as domestic violence calls in your neighborhood or violent crimes in your neighborhood, are all combining to create risk for kids. And so our own data has shown that things like domestic violence calls in your neighborhood and violent crime rates in your neighborhood even after accounting for exposures within your household, are changing some of the stress response systems in children, are increasing their impulsivity and oppositional behavior, and are making changes to these cellular markers of aging in all cells called telomeres. So what's important about that is that we don't pay enough attention to the health risks associated with things like community violence. And that when I see these changes in the stress response systems and I see these changes at the level of the cell, it's not just mental health that I worry about. It's cardiovascular disease, obesity, hypertension, diabetes. And that when I think about the links between things like community violence and health disparities, we begin to untangle these pathways and to say that much of what we are focusing on at the individual level isn't going to be sufficient because there are neighborhood-level factors and there are household-level factors that are also relevant and important. And so, you know, my hope is that the science of these biological pieces is going to give more strength to public health and policy efforts to say that it is not okay to have our children growing up surrounded by community violence and that it is not okay because even though it sounds like a bad idea, it's also driving up health care costs and it's driving up health disparities and, and to really try to put an economic and a biologic and a health tag on this so that we can begin to address it and shift it because it turns out that just saying that it's bad for a child's mental health hasn't been enough what we are doing, and it hasn't been enough to protect children, then I can't protect children if we don't protect families. My hope is that this 
science and the biology can be integrated with public health and policy efforts to really affect change in a way that I don't think science can do on its own. That's amazing. That is so inspiring to me to gain a little glimpse into the knowledge that you're developing, the type of society that this knowledge builds and what is possible for human experience. It's so inspiring. It's so exciting to learn about the research that you're doing and what kind of world it has the potential to create, especially with regard to public policy. I'm so happy to share that on this podcast. Will you share some of your significant partners that you work with as you've conducted this research? Yeah, it's um, people in public health. Catherine Dale, who has been, I would say, my partner in crime for many things, but it has been very exciting to work with her because she came in with a very different perspective. So she has always thought that neighborhoods were important, and I think both of us have been surprised by the fact that our work has become much more impactful um, because of the partnership. So for her, she's been saying neighborhoods are bad forever. But when we show an effect on telomere length, it's much more powerful. And for me, the ability to talk to someone and say, I feel like I'm missing a piece of an exposure that's bad for these kids. And for her to say, oh, yeah, well, that's the neighborhood piece. So I think one of the most amazing things about being at Tulane in particular is that I have such wonderful colleagues in such diverse fields that allow me to really be able to ask better questions because I have a broader perspective. And Sarah Gray is this soon-to-be and already is a rising star. She was a clinical psychologist who has spent her whole career really trying to understand how a mom's exposure to adversity influences both her ability to be an effective parent but also her, her child. And I think one of the things that she and I share is this idea that caregiving and parents, and not just moms and dads and grandparents, and have this potential to be this wonderful biological bubble wrap, that if we invest enough and we give moms tools and dads tools to understand how important they are for shaping their child's development, and I think even saying that you're going to help your child develop a more regulated stress response system, that how much you interact with them and how responsive you are to them is going to help them learn better and their immune systems respond better and regulate their emotions and behavior better, I think can be very empowering to moms and dads. And I, I feel like we don't spend enough time telling people or showing people how to be effective parents early on. And I, you know, and I see Sarah as a partner in that. So how do we begin to say to moms and dads that they're, every time they're interacting and they're responsive and they're warm to their child, they're helping their child grow stronger and healthier. And then having great support in my own departments, both in pediatrics and in psychiatry. So no one is able to be successful on their own, but having department chairman who allow you to grow and thrive, kind of like my own supportive caregiving system. So those have been incredible partners. And then really having peers throughout um, child psychiatry and pediatrics and, and psychology who have been supportive and, and listen to me ramble. Um, to help me shape questions. It's always good to have people that listen to you ramble. Tulane is frequently winning these types of awards. Tulane must be creating an amazing environment for researchers, medical leaders, mental health innovators. From what I'm reading, there are lots of awards uh, being garnered by this environment that you're in. Yeah, I think that is a testament to 
having an incredible theater. So this is the fourth award for Tulane Child Psychiatry, and I think it's over 12 years. So we're, we're kind of cornering the market on it, and I think that's a sign of both Charlie Zeno's leadership, but I think also this environment at Tulane that really grows impactful research that spans disciplines, and Tulane is now invested in uh, and has created it the last year and a half, the Tulane Brain Institute, with the vision that neuroscientists requires interactions across every school and every discipline, and it's been in this wonderful, energetic environment for growing, not just collaborative research across schools and fields, but being able also to train the next generation of scientists and public health and policymakers in the early academic setting. So Tulane has given us the opportunity to teach a course about adverse childhood experiences that integrates social work, law, public policy, psychiatry, neuroscience, and it's been incredibly fun to watch these young minds get very enthusiastic about being able to to speak languages across disciplines and to recognize that solving the problem of adversity and violence isn't going to happen within one discipline. And so my hope is that these students are going to grow up and, and not function within silos um, and really be transformative over the next decade. At Get Up Nation, we talk about living a life of significance, about living a life of meaning and impact and being connected with others and the concept of living our finest life. And as I hear you speak and as I hear what this research is unfolding in human minds, in our experience and how it will shape our society, what does it mean personally for you to know that you are living a life of monumental paradigm shifting understandings of adversity and resilience? Do you have moments of just supreme gratitude? What is that like for you personally? Um, I think it's very humbling and a little bit scary because I don't want to screw it up. I think that I feel very, very grateful to the families that were part of this project, that they were willing to share these experiences and these stories and to talk about what happened to them and what is happening to them now. That's just such a huge gift, and I think it is also a huge responsibility so, yeah, I mean, I think it's sometimes, oh, well, most of the time it's pretty terrifying because I, I don't want to, I don't want to screw it up, and I also don't want all of the trust that these families have placed in me and my research team to be misplaced. Hmm. So I want to make sure that, that they're sharing of their stories, that they're allowing me to watch their children grow up, and, oh, my gosh, they're the cutest children ever, and to allow us as a research team to be part of their lives has been just such a gift and I, I don't want to not value that and not have that be an impact because I, th I think it's, it's just that important and that you spend a lot of time talking with my research staff and my students about just how lucky we are that these families are so in engaged and want to be a part of the study and that really kind of drives the idea that we have to make this data useful. Doctor, I always end the show with six questions to help my listeners understand the why within my phenomenal guests. Will you run through these six quick questions with me? Sure. All right. Who are you thankful for today? I think I am most thankful for my incredibly patient husband, without whom none of this would have been possible because he was able to allow me to do crazy things and spend a lot of time doing them and to be supportive and make fun of me when necessary and also 
thankful for my children who keep me grounded. They are definitely the ones that make me step back and be much more thoughtful and take other perspectives that have just been such pleasures to watch grow and develop. And, and again, just feeling super lucky that they still like me. <laughs> and now that we've talked about who you're thankful for, what are you thankful for today? I'm thankful for my colleagues and my friends who have been such an important part of everything I do, both fun and work-related, and I am most thankful for all of my mentors over the years who have really shaped um, and helped me grow and develop. And how do you fuel the fire within you? I think that comes from not liking to be bored. I'm not good with boredom, but also because I have seen so many kids that have done amazing things with not a lot of resources or who have been exposed to so many things. And so if I ever get tired, I just compare what I'm doing to what they've accomplished. And it really motivates me to keep really driving both my science and my clinical practice. What's one thing adversity taught you to value? Social support and a network of people around you that are able to be there at times when you're struggling and also enjoy the roller coaster ride when you are having good experiences. And I think that's the message that I would say to anybody that's been exposed to any adversity, which is that's the best time to access your social network. And that I do think that that's one of the best ways to build resilience. What are you doing today you never thought you could? Speaking to people in public. <laughs> um, I, I've always had a lot of anxiety about being able to talk in public and so to be able to give presentations is very surprising to me. What will you do tomorrow you never thought you could? I think, I think there's lots of things that I never thought I could do. I think one potential area is, is to really be effective at translating science to changing policy. We are starting to have an impact and have City Council in New Orleans really recognizing the importance of this work. I mean, I don't think I ever would have thought that the science that I would do would have an impact at that level. And so that's definitely on my horizon, maybe not tomorrow, but soon I hope. How can people learn more about you and your work? We try to keep everything updated on our website. So if you Google Bangle, B-A-N-G-L at Tulane, you'll get to the research laboratory update. So there's a lot of information about the research, um, our first studies, my collaborators, videos are all there. And also, that's also where you can get in touch with me and check the email. Thank you so much, Doctor. I'll let you get back to your amazing work. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. At GetUp Nation, we talk a lot about transitioning our adversity into power bases of positive change that create an impact that goes beyond ourselves. How honorable to hear Dr. Drury share how she and her brilliant partners at Tulane have taken the adversity and suffering of families and applied all of their resources and brilliance into ensuring that these families' suffering would not pass away unnoticed and unacknowledged. Instead, they, with great reverence and attention to detail, extract the valuable lessons and knowledge from this adversity. Lessons and knowledge that will serve as great light for a thousand generations to come as we create societies that are effective in alleviating the agonies of violence and poverty, and hopefully to prevent them altogether. 
Dr. Drury and her team at Tulane are making heroes of those families who have endured so much. Isn't it a spectacular world we create when we pay attention to our suffering, as well as the suffering of those around us, as we seek to find relief for not only ourselves, but for our fellow human beings? Thank you, Dr. Drury and all those at Tulane who work in partnership with her, who set aside competition and apply your finest selfless efforts to work as a team, to work as friends, in order to create resilient families that give children the potential and power to excel beyond all expectation. These scientists and researchers demonstrate the power of research that understands not merely statistics, but the value of each life that is given the gift of breath upon this earth. If you've enjoyed this podcast and know of someone who you think should be a guest on the show, please subscribe and message me at getupnationpodcast.com. Thank you for taking time to listen. Please share with those who need to hear a message of resilience and perseverance 